I'm going to start by uh, quickly running through uh, a bit of, about Elias's life story because I think in some ways it's a key to his, uh, it, it casts quite a bit of light on his his work and um, it also I think helps to clear up a point to how far he's been uh, misunderstood so uh, then I'll stop and we can uh, you can ask questions there there are two very peculiar features of, of Elias's international reputation. Uh, the main one being that he, recognition came right at the very end, very end of his life. He, he, when I first was in touch with him in 1970 and met him in 1972, no one had heard of him. He was well known, he was beginning to be well known in Germany and the Netherlands and a few years after that he became something of a celebrity in France but in fact um, his reputation, because of his main books not being available uh, in English and in fact as I'll explain in a moment, many of them had not yet been published at all um, in fact his reputation in the English-speaking world, really, only dates from about 1980 onwards. Um, and the other peculiarity of his work, and I think you know this is testament uh, to it, is that in many ways his standing seems to be higher uh, in lots of other subjects. There are, there are people working with Elias's ideas in God knows how many disciplines, many of them <laughs> represented here, and in some ways um, he seems to me to be seems to appeal to people in the interstices of disciplines and interstitial disciplines themselves. Big, very important, for example, in criminology and the study of violence and uh, Various other various other thing, um, disciplines of that kind. Um, when I'm in my sour mood, I say that the reason for that is that modern sociology, as institutionalised in universities, has become so intensely boring that people wouldn't be interested. In it. But it's also a fact that he's a product of sociology in Weimar Germany he's, he's the generation absolutely immediately after Max Weber if Max Weber hadn't uh, died young he would have probably been a, a student of Max Weber's and in those days sociology was an imperial discipline uh, the study of all things uh, social and human seems to have become rather narrower since well that's that's what he looked like, and he's wearing uh, a sweater knitted by Barbara, one of, one of two. Um, many photographs show him wearing Barbara's sweaters. He, um, he, he sort of wore them continuously day after day after day for about five years until they fell apart. Anyway, um, and there's a shot of him lecturing in America, that's in a certain sense not representative because I think he only visited America about three times and he's still much less well known in America um, than uh, pretty much in the rest of the world. Okay, born in Breslau, now Wrocław, um, someone who was saying, yeah, you were saying uh, you, you, uh, that uh, um, you, know, you came across his name in Wrocław. 
was Jewish, but he always said that, you know, it was a secular Jewish family, that his father was, it was entirely German, he always used to say, and my father even had a, a, a Kaiser Wilhelm moustache. And he, there are peculiarities about this. The official story, as Elias used to tell it to us, was that he never had any trouble with anti-Semitism. After he died, it became clear when people began to delve into his life that he'd actually been an active Zionist for many uh, years. But you can ask me about that uh, later. It's not altogether clear why he wanted to disguise that. He was in the German army on the Eastern Front and then more on the Western Front, um, laying, laying, tele uh, laying telegraph wires, um, and probably was um, shell-shocked out of the... Uh, front line. He remembered seeing a comrade killed alongside him while they were maintaining telegraph wires, but he had no clear recollection of how he came to be back in Breslau and acting as a medical orderly at the end of the uh, First World War. It looks as though it was uh, shell shock, but he had no clear memories of it. At Breslau University, he studied both philosophy and medicine, and he always said that uh, his experience in the dissecting room uh, was very important to him in uh, the influence, subsequent influence it had on his conception of human beings. He, he dropped out, of, well, he, he, he realised he couldn't ride two horses at once, I think he put it, and uh, uh, chose philosophy for his doctoral thesis and was supervised by a man called Richard Hernigswald, one of the uh, notable neo-Kantians of the time. And this is absolutely pivotal because they got into an absolutely furious row. Um, uh, Elias, you know, we're talking about, what, 19, boom, 21, 20, 2021. Um, he, he, so he was only in his early 20s, say 25 at most, and got into a furious row because... He re Elias rejected the whole idea of the Kantian a priori, the idea of the, the, the human mind being sort of genetically, uh, well, that's not what Kant would have said, but that we would say inherently uh, hardwired for certain categories like space and time and causality, and of course the golden rule of um, the, the categorical imperative, in, in effect, do unto others as you would be done unto. Um, Hell of a row. In fact, uh, Hernigswald didn't want him, refused for a year to allow him to have his doctorate. Um, and in the end, the thesis was mutilated. Elias had to turn out, well, tear out the last, I think, about three pages um, to remove the bit where he most strongly disagreed with the neo-Kantian uh, position. And they're still missing. The, the thesis was recovered and subsequently published, but uh, um, not the last three pages. And this becomes absolutely essential to... You could say that his entire thinking grows out of this bloody great row uh, over neo-Kantianism with, with Hernigswald. He... Um, it, le it led him to a rejection not just of Kantian philosophy, but of um, um, 
uh, the entire discipline of, of philosophy, and that's quite radical because you know in in Western universe, Western European universities in particular, there is a well Western universities there is a pecking order, the pecking order of dis- the prestige of disciplines more or less coincides with the how old they are, and philosophy is a very old discipline, and sociology is a very new discipline in universities and. Really, we sociologists have no one left to look down on except cultural studies and, uh, and media studies. Um, but you have to be quite bold to say that, in effect, you know, if I may paraphrase, as he would have not said, philosophy is a load of crap and should be abandoned. Um, so when he um, went, um, he, he, there was the Great German inflation. Oh no, sorry, I should say the the, the the bit that had to be cut out was his argument that you could not understand why people could think in terms of space, time, causality, morality, and everything else um, uh, without looking at what he called then chains of generations. In in, in other words, the growth of knowledge uh, and the accumulation of, of knowledge from one generation to the next and it wasn't a perfect formulation but you could argue that he was still formulating this idea right up it's alright don't worry he he was formulating this idea right up to his dying day because the last the last piece that he was writing when he died in 1990 was a preface to his book The Symbol Theory and just in the last couple of weeks we have managed to extract from some computer, and computer disks were virtually only being introduced when he died, but he, we actually got com- the last computer disks, and there is a, a splendidly aggressive passage in which he's dumping on uh, uh, Derrida in the last few days of his, uh, his, his life. Um, okay, then there's the great German inflation. He had to give up his uh, academic work and helped support the family, worked as a salesman. Um, then, of course, this is also the period of uh, 1918 onwards, is also the period of the, the Freikorps uh, in, uh, in Germany. He, one of his uh, schoolmates was. Uh, found floating face down in the canal with his uh, tied up in barbed wire. Um, um, I'm trying to keep it chronological, but I'll come back to why I'm um, mentioning these instabilities. Went to Heidelberg in 1925, not as a philosopher, but as a sociologist, to study, to do his Habilitationsschrift with uh, Alfred Weber, that is um, Max Weber's younger brother, who was himself a very important sociologist. Um, The thesis also is relevant to the character of his later works. He was going to write, we have the outline of it, though it was never properly written, Um, it was going to be a study of the common origins of uh, Western art, and Western science in 15th century Florence and the social circumstances that uh, are bound up with, and of course, uh, double entry bookkeeping, all sorts of things. So the interconnection between art and science. Didn't write it, although we, we now have a pretty good idea what his argument was going to be, because he also became uh, a close friend and assistant to Karl Mannheim, who certainly when I was a 
young sociologist was a much more famous figure than Elias, although the reverse is now true, one of the principal founders of the sociology of knowledge. When Mannheim um, was called to the chair of sociology in Frankfurt in 1929, Elias went with him as his assistant uh, and they actually were housed in the sort of they rent, the university rented the basement of the building, the Institute for Social Forschung, the famous Frankfurt School. So there are social connections, although a certain intellectual tension between the Frankfurt School and the Elias, the Mannheim stroke Elias crowd. And then, of course, the inevitable Hitler came to power. Elias was rushed through his, his new habilitation, which was uh, the book that many, many years later was published as Die Höfische Gesellschaft, the, the court society. Um, um, but if, there are many stories which you'll find in his autobiographical essay about uh, uh, the, the, the violent take and the takeover of the town and the university. Then he went into exile in Paris, couldn't get a job, tried to start a business, lost all his money, uh, and um, ended up in London. And uh, the reason I'm emphasising the, uh, the, the instability, the, the, the disasters that afflicted him, is that people seem to think that because he wrote a book called Ubedein Protest de Civilisation, he had some idea, that, and particularly when it's translated rather badly into English as the civilising process, that he had some idea of inevitable progress. He had seen war and, um, and, and street violence and uh, um, uh, inflation and political collapse and the rise of fascism. He was not naive. And there is a certain tendency for particularly... Particularly the, uh, the what you might call the aristocratic uh, uh, anthropological tendency, and the the, the 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 anthropological establishment in Britain, in particular, um, who are not only higher in the academic pecking order, but tend to be from uh, higher social class than <laughs> uh, than sociologists. Anyway. The whole point is that he has a sense, if you read Elias carefully, of course it's not all spelled out because the book was actually published before the Holocaust, but if you read him carefully, you realise that he's saying that the what he calls the civilising process is a thin and fragile veneer. He's basically saying you can do it the other way around. It can, it can, take, a, it can take a long time to go up and then it can go down. In effect, the civilizing, what he calls the European civilizing process, takes an awful long time to gradually accumulate. It's a very slow process, but it's still quite fragile, and it can it can shatter. On the other hand, you know, again, we talk about the Holocaust. Uh, Sredmund Leach said in a famous sneer that uh, while Elias was writing his theory, uh, Hitler was disproving it on the largest possible scale. Um, and that's a standard sneer that comes again from Gary Runciman, Law Runciman, and the, 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 the sort of high elite. But it's much more complicated than that. And they also tend to forget, of course, that after the Second World War, uh, the, the Germans became, you know, arguably one of the most, in the technical sense, civilized countries in, in Europe once more. Of course, his 
Uh, his mother died in in, in, turn, in uh, Auschwitz. He was interned for about nine months, was got out through the efforts of C.P. Snow, among others, made an, a very precarious living as an extramural lecturer after the war. Uh, he was one of the founders of the group analytic movement. And then finally, and this should be an encouragement to all graduate students present in the room, at the age of 57, he finally got... <laughs> <laughs> a permanent job at the University of Leicester. Um, Leicester years built up what was the biggest and for some time, for a few years anyhow, the most influential department of sociology in, um, in the country. Um, he, it was there that he developed what had been implicit, I suppose you could say, ever since the Hernigsfeld row, a theory, a sociological theory of knowledge and the sciences. Um, he pioneered the sociology of sport, which I'm not going to talk about, but there is an, you know, he, he could, along with Eric Dunning, he can be counted essentially as the founder of the sociological study of sport, which is now a huge industry. Then he went off. Uh, for a couple of years as head of department in the Department of Sociology at Ghana, and I thought just to break the list of things, I mean, these are just a couple. He had hundreds, he bought hundreds of um, uh, items of African art, and the, the, not just his own house, but the next door, the one next door to it was absolutely stuffed with them. Unfortunately, the collection was display, was um, um, uh, was uh, dispersed after his death, but these were two of the most notable items, rather beautiful uh, mask. And this one is interesting because in a later essay, Elias uh, uh, talked about it as uh, the image of a superego. And um, that, of course, really gets the anthropologists going. They, they have palpitations at the application of Freudian theory or anything. I mean, Elias is not an orthodox Freudian, but he draws on Freud, there's no doubt about that. And um, uh, the anthropologist just goes spare. Um, his fame actually only began to emerge again after the reissue of Ubedain Protest Ed Civilisation in Switzerland in 1969, paper backed by Zurkamp in the mid 1970s. And then there were about a dozen other books. And apart from this one early book, the, the masterpiece, the, the, the huge civilising process book, every single one of his subsequent books, a dozen or more, were published after he retired, which I find enormously encouraging, having just retired myself. Um, now, okay, um, I thought about could I talk about Elias without going into detail about the civilising process, but it's so, so central uh, to his subsequent work that it's difficult to avoid it. The question is, what was the fundamental sociological problem that Elias wanted to help solve when he began research on manners and state formation in Europe? Well, you could formulate, it's the question of how human habitus changes over many generations and in, this, in the case of this particular study over a period of about 500 years in Europe although he, he was actually interested in much longer term processes of social development. Uh, you may wonder what I mean about the E. coli of 
civilising uh, processes. Um, the Dutch Earth, a very distinguished Dutch Earth scientist, um, Peter Westbrook, recently wrote a book, it's in French actually, not yet published in English, called Terra, with, a, with a, an exclamation mark, in which he makes a point, I think, very uh, interesting. Uh, um, uh, scientists in the late 50s and 60s, when they needed to, when they were beginning to study DNA, reckoned they couldn't study the, the DNA of every, um, every possible form of life. And the, the, what they chose to study was the DNA of E. coli, um, the principal food poisoning sort of uh, bug that we all have in our systems. And they found, in fact, to their surprise, that it, much of what they found did apply across the board to all forms of uh, cell functioning. And uh, he, he, Peter argues that uh, you should see the civil, the civilizing, the Ubidian process, in that context. But Elias is not saying this is the civilizing process, which... Um, you know, uniquely happened in Europe and was then exported to less happier lands without the law. Um, he, he's saying that actually, and this I'm quite sure from Elias's later writings that this is true, Elias thought that civilising processes were always happening in various forms uh, and that this is simply the one that he, he chose as the, the E. coli example. Habitus. Second nature is the pithy way Elias describes it. Um, Bourdieu, people tend to think that it's Bourdieu who invented the word habitus. He didn't at all. He took it over, possibly from Elias, but certainly from earlier writers like uh, Hauptwax, I think. Anyway, the, the, the French and, and Germans before the war, like Emil Leber. It's The idea is second nature. They are social standards, they are very deeply habituated things that we feel as though we have always known, which feel innate even to us, but we can't remember um, learning them. Most of us can't learn, don't want, can't remember and don't want to remember our own toilet training, for example. Um, but they, get, they become very deeply in sort of, so that they feel natural and feel innate to us. And, of course, uh, that... In other words, what he's trying to develop is a kind of historical social psychology. Um, and it's not just the way people behave, it's the way they feel. In other words, it's about um, the psychological side, the emotional side of, um, of social life as well. Um, and uh, I, I quoted something there about the growth of knowledge, but let's move on. Um, actually, the idea that Human habitus changes is again something which is quite controversial, and the the, the orthodox establishment, people like Giddens, for example, Giddens was one of the people that Elias appointed to his first job in Leicester, um, to often produces a negative reaction um, along the lines. In the case of Giddens, all human beings can speak, therefore they're all the same. I, I kid you not. It's almost as crude as that in Tony Giddens' work. That, together with uh, the influence, certainly in Britain, of uh, Elias's particular veterinarian, Karl Popper, 
led uh, to a dominant strand, at least in British sociology and probably wider, of uh, what Carl August Wittfogel called developmental agnosticism, a kind of avoidance of the idea that there are any long-term social processes, that it's all just a jumble. And this, this too, is a debate that goes back a long way. For example, uh, Alfred Weber, Elias's um, uh, teacher in, in Heidelberg, um, reckoned that there were uh, social and economic changes, long-term changes, but that when it came to culture, you couldn't discern any pattern. In other words, he took the anthropological orthodoxy that, you know, some, my tribe does it this way and, my, and that tribe does it, your tribe does it some other way, and that there's nothing further you could say on the subject. But I'm fond of quoting about this problem of habitus uh, and its change. I'm fond of quoting a remark made by the famous American soci well, sociologist, um, anthropologist and, and psychologist, Cluckholm and Murray, that every person is in certain respects like every other person, like some other people and like no other person, and that's terribly obvious once it's spoiled out. The study of habitus and its changes is at level B. The other thing that Elias emphasises, which is often misunderstood, is that, in fact, there's a whole essay developing this, that every process of socialisation into prevailing social standards is also simultaneously a process of the individualisation of those standards. OK, the book, oh God, it is a gigantic one, and I'm in the throes of editing it again for the collected works. Um, originally two volumes... One was called Changes in the Behaviour of the Secular Human... Uh, it said it was a, a study of changes in the behaviour of the secular upper classes in the West, um, a description which actually disappeared in the English title, which was published as um, The History of Manners, a terrible title. Um, and the vol a second volume often looks as though it has no bearing on the first. It's called State Formation and Civilization. In America, it was published under a completely unauthorised title, State Formation and Civilization. Uh, sorry, Power and Civility, which is why the Americans think that Elias talks about civility. He doesn't. Um, the book opens, part one, with a, a discussion of the sociogenesis, the social development of the concepts of civilization and culture. But it's a discussion of the emic level. I don't know whether you're familiar with the anthropologist distinction between uh, emic and etic, or etic, uh, I never know how it's pronounced, um, the concept. Uh, it's similar to Schutz's philosophical distinction between first and, order, first and second order concepts. In other words, emic concepts are concepts that people use so people actually did talk about courtoisie and then civilité and then civilisation over a period of centuries. Uh, but the discussion is about how people came to use those concepts. Then Elias says, moving on to part two, the most famous part about manners, uh, he says, yes, but... Okay, so the Europeans became very proud of their superiority, their civilization, as they thought of it. But what, and they forgot, I'm jumping ahead of myself, they forgot that actually over a period of many generations they had attained those standards which they regarded as very superior. 
But he said that actually, quite apart from the dubious question of superiority, um, which is just a social fact that people did think of themselves as socially superior. What is going? What were the changes that factually took uh, took place over a period? So he's trying to get down and get up, if you like, to the ethic, the, the social scientific, if you like, level, where you use the everyday concepts that people are using to try to make sense in a more strategic, uh, a more social scientific. But uh, that will be part three is uh, on feudalization and state formation, long study of the formation, particularly of the French state and the monopolization of violence, it can seem not really closely related, and uh, I, I probably won't have time to go into detail about how it is related. And then part four, the end of the second original volume, um, is what he calls a synopsis, but that's in the sense of synoptic gospels, in other words, um, bringing it all together. Um, obviously, I'll skip over this. I've largely said it. Civilization is a controversial word, a term of collective self-approbation. Those are all the things on the, on the screen that we, we tend to mean when we use civilized. We don't like to use civilized and civilization very much anymore because of its connotations of 19th century superiority. But it's very striking that uh, immediately in the two weeks after um, the attacks on 9-11, the attacks on New York and Washington, it's very striking I tracked the use of the term civilization across the world's press. And wow, you know, straight out of the the collective unconscious... All the politicians were talking about an attack on civilization, so it became the buzzword. It doesn't mean that it's in any sense a valid term. It just shows that it's there, sort of in a kind of collective level of collective unconscious. I've said that. I think we can move on. That there's nothing inherent about the the, the standards that 19th century Europeans thought were so superior. Um, and the important thing is that they became unconscious of the fact that they learned that these ways of behaving, they'd sunk to the level of habitus, to deeply ingrained uh, habits that they, uh, that they couldn't remember learning. Um, okay, I think I've said that as well, that, uh, that when we get onto the manners section, that um, it's a study of essentially manners books and how the standards set out in them, in um, in books in uh, English, German, French, and Italian, uh, change according to pretty much the same pattern um, from the 13th to the 19th century, and they were addressed to the upper classes. It's important to remember that, of course, they were because the lower classes couldn't read anyhow. Um, they were um, um, addressed to courtiers, would-be courtiers, and would-be and bourgeois aspirant uh, groups. And they, the famous discussion in this book is about table manners, what he calls the natural functions, um, uh, because in 1939 the eyebrows might have been raised if you would say shitting and pissing, but that's actually what he meant. Um, blowing your nose, spitting, behaviour in the bedroom, undressing and, and 
nakedness and so on. And uh, but it seems he gathered things on other. He gathered, gathered evidence in the thirties that he didn't actually use because on one occasion he said. Um, I think we ought to, you know, I gathered a lot of information about changing social standards regarding masturbation. I think I ought to write a new section on that. It never got written, but anyway, that's it. Um, The trajectory is that the medieval books say very little. There are rules, there is no such thing as a zero point, there's no such thing as an uncivilised society. There are always rules, that's the importance of those matters of you know, bodily management. Uh, they're always the same. The social, there is no social zero point. Um, and because these are aspects of life that all societies at all times have to deal with, you can actually tra- track the changes rather more easily than you can in, uh, in, in some more abstract things. Then, from the Renaissance onwards, the key figure is Erasmus, um, the rules become more elaborate and more is said. More nuances are introduced about how you should behave in these things. Later, by the late 18th century and particularly in the 19th century, whole tracts of what used to be included disappear. They can no longer be talked about. You know, the, the, the last manners book he uses is, I think, 1859 and the idea that they would discuss... Um, toilet habits um, is by then quite in, inconceivable. But in the earlier books, they, they, even the earliest books have some rules about that. You know, like uh, if you should encounter a friend in the uh, in the act of defecation, it is bad manners to engage him in conversation. Uh, and then, you know, fairly rapidly, it's uh, for God's sake, don't ever do it in public. Um, Oh, this is where I could go on with, uh, for a long time. <laughs> Let's just take briefly table manners. There's no zero point. Medieval books don't seem to change much over a period of centuries. I think Tannhäuser's Hofzug is the earliest uh, book that is uh, discussed. Nothing much changes till about the 15th century. Um, and there are some rules like don't. Sorry, Angela. I mean, there is no point where there are no rules at all. Sorry. Um, Sorry about that. No, no, not at all. I I wasn't conscious of not having spelled it. (laughs) You you get inside your own jargon, Angela. That's the the trouble. Um, No, all societies have some rules about these things. Uh, In that sense, there is no zero point. But, okay... There are rules that even in the, the early, the, 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 the high Middle Ages, don't slurp your soup, and then they become a bit more elaborate. You know, it is bad manners to take a juicy, uh, take a bit of gristle out of your mouth and put it back in the common bowl and, and things. And then, by uh, one that always sticks in my mind, by Courtin's French book of 1670, uh, he says, um, uh, if you have been eating soup with your spoon it is very bad manners to use your spoon to take a second helping from the tureen and the, and the interesting phrase there are uh, some gens si délicats some, uh, some people are so delicate some so fussy 
but they would not eat anything out of that Turing afterwards. And he, Elias said, it's as if there is an invisible wall of affect or, or emotions growing up between people's bodies. And the, you know, then he alludes to the Bible in another place. They saw they were naked and were ashamed. Okay, that's the general trajectory, and I don't have time to go through all those things. Although, the question of nakedness is odd. I, I just scanned these two picture, famous pictures from um, Evans Pritchard's celebrated study of the Noor. These would, be, it would, would have been photographs of naked um, uh, people in, along the Noor in the 1920s, where clearly... Um, there are, it's not a zero point, but that nakedness was not a problem in all human groups at all times. Even then, there were probably some rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do. But um, this is uh, uh, a print from uh, from the uh, from the uh, Middle Aldous House Auction at the end of Volume One of the Civilizing Process, discussing its core scenes from the life of the night and he refers to 17 in the print of the, the kind of I've just selected this one for today. It's in the new edition of the Civilizing Process. We're going to have beautiful full colour uh, prints of uh, Barbara Grounds at the expense um, uh, of all of these things. And this is just a bathhouse late 15th century Germany. Young men and women sitting together naked in the bathhouse you know, there are the, the the story about nakedness is is quite complicated. I think, and I don't think Elias got the full story there. He got part of it. It's not altogether clear what happened. And of course, there's an enormous uh, literature on the nude in art. And the question is perhaps whether uh, there is a possible connection with other theories of Elias. The uh, the, he discusses in connection with sport the, the rise of spectatorship and, and the process of uh, sublimation. Um, and, um, uh, well, anyway, I just like that picture. Um, and sexuality, too. I, I, I use this uh, diagram, this, this painting from the house book as well. You know, uh, again, as it happens, young couple getting into the bath together. There, people seem to be involved in what used to be known as the poor man's telly. Um, but anyway, um, um, it's quite clear that there must have been... Um, shall we say that um, in medieval Europe, it seems highly unlikely that, that children would have been traumatised for life if they had uh, encountered the... Uh, the act of copulation going on. Okay. More generally, why study these apparently trivial matters and why are they important? I, I mean, certainly a lot of um, sociologists think, you know, real men do social stratification. Why would anyone uh, want to uh, study this sort of thing? Well, as I said, all human societies have to have some rules or standards about these things. And although there's no zero point, no social zero point, there is a universal zero in the individual civilizing process because all babies are born in the same uh, state of total barbarity. Um, 
Talbot Parsons used to be fond of saying that there are uh, that, that, that human society is subject to a permanent barbarian invasion, babies in other words. And uh, but it is easier to track because the, these out matters of outward bodily propriety change. It's easier uh, because they're universal. It's uh, it's easy to track change. And actually, people became more aware of changing standards uh, at the end. Of, really, in the age of print, one of um, Caxton's earliest books is a manners book, and uh, in this nice little uh, couplet. Uh, Things Willem used been now laid aside. Things sometime allowed is now reproved. In other words, we used to be able to do things that are no longer allowed. I've already quoted that. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, one uh, more generalizing, Elias is talking about what he calls the advance or the rise of the threshold of embarrassment. People get more easily embarrassed. Um, and also things are being moved behind the scenes of social life. Lots of things, and I mean, we all eat still in company, but lots of the other things, things like uh, the bedroom, has become a much more private pet place, and lots of other things that Elias does not discuss. But, for example, Keith Thomas does. Uh, slaughtering of animals have been uh, moved behind the scenes of social life, and there's an enormous literature uh, on the removal of um, capital punishment behind the scenes, and then um, obviously uh, abolition except in Saudi Arabia, the Republic of China, and the United States of America. Um, but there is also a kind of psychological process going on as well. It's not just that things are no longer on public view in a, in a social and spatial sense, but there is a sense in which, uh, to use Freudian terminology, things are also being shoved down behind the scenes of mental life into the id and the unconscious. And explanations, I really am going to have to speed up. We'll have a break in a few minutes. Um, the explanation for these trends, uh, it's not material reasons. Um, people ate with their hands because they wanted to, they could have afforded it. We're talking about the top of society. They did have things like gold spoons for serving. They could have had gold spoons to eat with, uh, but they didn't. Um, it's not reasons of health and hygiene. Elias is able to show that, for example, the ban on spitting, um, actually um, the medical opinion follows the, ch the social change, that um, uh, when everyone spat openly, as they do still, I think, in, in China, for example, um, that the medics said, you know, to, you know, must get rid of it. It's unhealthy to retain sputum. And then the, standard, the, the, the social standard changed. People found it disgusting. Then the medics say, very unhealthy. Uh, the, the significant thing is reasons of respect. And he's able to show that at first new rules tended to come in. It is disrespectful uh, to your social superior to behave in this way. So, for example, for quite a long time, it was perfectly okay for the king or queen or, or, or a lord to appear naked in front of the servants. Uh, Voltaire's mistress, um, Madame du Chatelet, um, famously had male servants filling up the bath water for her, you know, with, uh, completely oblivious to um, uh, the problem of, of nakedness. But 
you could the, 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 the social superior could appear undressed in front of the social inferior, but it was disrespectful for the social inferior. Okay, there's a whole range of patterns across the whole range of these aspects of behaviour where that seems to be the key. Uh, and only in late state, by the 19th century, do so many of these standards come to apply to the same uh, to everyone in the same circumstance? It's not really just. It's not more self-control. It's something more. Uh, the essence of the civilizing process, according to Elias, is the transformation of what he calls self, uh, sorry, fremdsang, constrained by other people, into zeltsang, uh, self-control, self-constraint. And that's something that, of course, happens in the individual civilizing process, in the process of the, the socialization of the, the human infant. Uh, but there's also an aspect of that at the collective level, from generation to generation, uh, he argues. And um, uh, it's something a bit more subtle than just being able to... Uh, for, uh, the, the Native Americans could famous warriors could famously withstand pain, for example, better than we can. But he's saying that the long-term trend in, in Europe was towards more even controls, in other words, less volatile temperament. Um, and, and, and you can find that, for example, in housing as waning of the Middle Ages. I mean, Elias is not the first person to point to that. But these habits become more automatic, they're, they're, they become habituated, and they're more all-embracing in the sense that they apply in all circumstances, which I've just been saying. Uh, then there's a question of, has it gone into reverse? And there is an enormous literature on what you can loosely call the permissive society, but which my friend Casavaltas, who spent 40 years studying this, uh, prefers to call informalization. In other words, the fact that we, setting aside all the things about sex, um, the fact that when I first went to work in an office as a, as a teenager, uh, we would have addressed the boss as Mr. So-and-so, and, or Sir even. Um, titles were much in use. It took a little while before you got onto Christian name terms, even with friends. Uh, uh, and this is very clear in the countries that have Dutoyer uh, and, and Dutzen. Um, something has changed in the last 40 years. Not for the first time, there have been informalization spurts or two in the 1890s and 1920s. It's a sort of wave like uh, motion. The question is just as. Um, just as uh, um, Edmund Leach sneered about Hitler disproving the, the violence aspect of the theory. Is it also the case that more informal manners, more egalitarian, if you like, easy social relations also disproves the long-term trend of the civilization? Big literature on this. I put a couple of books on uh, the reading list, but the essence of Casavalta's uh, argument is that actually... In some respects, the more informal standards require... It involves a highly selective decontrolling of emotional controls that certain things are more relaxed, but against the background of greater self-control. For example, 
maintaining a, a, a sexual a relationship with a sexual partner in the long term, bringing up children, without any very strong framework of law and religious ritual, which is something that's really only happened in the last, a trend that's, that's often been very clear in the last 20 years in Ireland. Actually, that in many respects requires more um, self-control and, uh, than, than when you're working within a framework of fairly considerable external um, uh, deterrence, if you like. Oh yeah, I suppose I should finish the civilising process section by saying that actually, when it gets down to it, you could argue that the most important bit of this is not all about table manners and spitting and undressing, uh, but his argument that this is also uh, apply, this also applies to con uh, to habitual levels of self-control over the use of violence. Here's another of the Hausbuch prints showing people being stabbed and their houses burnt and so on. Um, it's not a static question, is man aggressive? Um, Anthony Storr once came to St Anthony's College while I was there in Oxford and the title of his talk was, Is Man Aggressive? And he attracted an audience of huge audience of about 200 people, nearly all of whom were female because they, they read it as meaning is, is the human male aggressive? Um, basically the argument the, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to skip over this but basically the argument is that the same kinds of habitual control very gradually and rather in a rather fragile way come to apply to the use of violence as well. Um, the long-term incidence of violence seems to be down. That's now well. Uh, um, but the, the argument and the bridge from volume one to volume two where it goes on enormously about uh, the rise of the state. What's the state got to do with it? The point is that sociologists always use the, the term the state to, in, in the sense of Max Weber's definition of uh, an organisation that successfully upholds uh, a monopoly of uh, rulemaking within a territory by means of achieving a monopoly of the legitimate use of violence. And uh, Elias's argument is that if in a particular region the power of central authority grows, um, if, if people are forced to live in peace, then they will gradually become habituated, not resorting uh, to violence. The other side of it is that as territories in Europe got bigger and internal pacification within, say, proto-France or, or England, became, the, the monopolisation of violence became more definite. At the same time, the scale and violence of wars between the territories became bigger and more, more vicious and killed more people. So it's not a simple process. It's bound up with who your we images apply to, who, who do you see as your fellow citizens, or you mustn't kill those, but we can not push it out of the Germans. That's the, you know, that's the, that's the sort of um, logic of it. <coughs> and it's a spiral process. It's not just internal pacification in the sense of the control of violence. It's also to do with 
Internal pacification promotes trade, trade, economic growth, the growth of towns, which leads to taxes, which leads to a more effective administration, bigger and better armies, bigger wars, bigger pacified territories, and so on. So that's the, that's uh, volume two in a nutshell. Um, I think that uh, that's 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 on one page a, a summary of the concluding section of. Uh, the civilising process. And there are, of course, a dozen other books to consider besides the civilising process, but I'll shut up now. Any thoughts? Um, I just kind of want to ask what uh, I thought of capitalism in terms of world uh, um, force, because perhaps I'm coming from a very naive background, but I kind of think that these the social norms and the, the vaccination and sort of social norms over time more recent, the last century or so, possibly have been uh, affected to a large extent by these kind of you know, overarching processes yeah. of capitalism and things like that. I'm thinking in particular about the idea of individualism, you know, and um, materialism whereby, you know, it's less, it's less important perhaps to the individual what the state um, is trying to impose on society and it's the idea that you make up your own rules as you go along it's, it's very, uh, very uh, self-aware self-importance mm. I, I don't know, I'm just kind of throwing the idea out there and wondering if you foresaw these kind of changes being impacted by the power of capitalism and mm. globalisation to yeah, well, it, wasn't, it wasn't terribly political though he did say that he normally had a favourable impression of businessmen after he worked as a uh, salesman for a, a, a steel work, I think it was, in, in the, for a brief time in the 1920s. Um, it's, first of all, the state is not really, it's a theory of state formation. He always says no one is actually driving it, no one knows where it's going. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of many blind, what he calls blind, unplanned processes. So, the king in the Middle Ages usually is just fighting the next battle. Um, and it's not really planned, you know, the king in Paris didn't really think. And then, two or three hundred years from now, I think I might have a nice neat excellent, you know, with the, the Rhine at that end and the Pyrenees. He wasn't like that, it was a kind of Wimbledon tennis tournament with people who were successively knocked out and the number of the number of players became smaller but they had bigger Territory, so uh, really just picking you up on the way you said the press that the, the state is trying. But what I wanted to, I think the point is that the monopolization of violence, the pacification of territory, is fundamental because it's fundamental, it, it, it makes possible all the other things. They're, they're not really separate processes, but the growth of town, taxation, administrative uh, structures. Um, uh, bigger armies and so on. They're all into, interwoven um, with each other. But Elias's argument, I think, is that unless you've got peaceful day-to-day life, none of that is really possible. Because when you have the barbarian invasions, the Vikings and Visigoths and Gondor, that tended to, I didn't talk about that, he doesn't actually discuss when process is going into reverse. Just as a civilizing process goes into reverse. So the um, uh, the, 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 the 
national relations front, we've now got to the stage where global capitalism uh, makes individual states uh, roughly in the position of uh, individual parishes uh, under the Elizabethan poor law. You know, that um, uh, if, um, if, you know, <coughs> if one state has higher taxes, uh, just like a parish, any... Uh, you know, the parishioners who could move probably would get out if, if the, that their parish was trying to tax them more to support the poor. And if the poor were being uh, given uh, a higher um, um, uh, poor relief, uh, they would tend to flood towards that parish. Well, we're now in a situation where most states, like Poor Little Ireland, are uh, insignificant compared with the might of, shall we say, Goldman Sachs or, or what have you. Um, so it's all about power. And funnily enough, I haven't really brought out the, the, the power. I, I mean, we edit one book that uh, Job Hausblum and I edited was called um, a set of readings uh, for the Chicago series called Norbert Elias on um, Civilization, Power and Knowledge. I haven't talked about knowledge, and I've got a horrible feeling I'm not going to be able to get very far uh, this morning. But um, I hinted at it when I was talking about how um, the, 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 the social superior could be undressed in front of the inferior. So in the background of all this, is that it's about changing power relationships as well. And um, what is power? You would not believe what a mass sociologist managed to make about power. They can't think straight. American sociologists absolutely can't think about it at all. Uh, I doubt whether there's a single American sociologist who knows what power is um, because they're so close to it, they've got so much of it that they try to deny they've got any. Uh, but you know, it, it arri power arises precisely out of this dependence. If, 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 you, if I if I owe you, uh, if I'm more dependent on you for something that you've got, than you are on me for something I've got, you are more powerful than I am. And that's, that, that's it. That's all you need to say. Uh, sociologists have this tendency to think that nothing can be taken seriously, so they can, uh, they can dress it up in impenetrable jargon. So much for my own discipline. <laughs>
set to be similarity. I, I, I mean, my, I'll give you my own opinion. Um, Foucault somehow managed to become terribly famous. I have a prejudice that the whole of post-war intellectual life in Paris was a giant uh, a confidence trick played on the un unsuspecting Anglo-Saxon. Um, but he, for example, his conception of power is crap. I mean, he really does not understand power. And the other thing uh, is that he um, uh, that, 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 uh, he goes on about power, but he doesn't understand it. Uh, uh, the, the other thing is that, in my view, he, he, he's like a horse fail, uh, refusing the last jump. His work always takes you to the point where you have to offer a sociological explanation of the changes he's describing. And at that point, he veers off and goes back into, withdraws into his philosophical shell. However, anecdote, Elias actually did, um, they seem to have admired each other in spite of the rather uncharitable remarks that I made. Elias said to me, I, I, I said something dismissive like that, you know, back in the 1980s, and he said, but very good stuff, he said, good long-term theory, and he said, I particularly liked the idea that you are really truly yourself. Uh, the essence of your true self is when you are involved, involved in a sexual relationship. Um, and it, it came to light after Foucault died that um, Foucault actually translated Elias's um, The Loneliness of the Dying into French for his own use. And the, the translation has never been published, but it was not then available in in, in French. So there was a, a, a kind of mutual admiration, whatever I might say, in my dismissive way. First of all, before Mary Douglas, you might think about Levi Strauss. And I remember when Elias was very, very old, the BBC rang me up and said, you know, could you get Elias to. Uh, we've got this series of discussions between prominent intellectuals, and we thought we might put. Uh, Elias and Levi Strauss uh, together and it would have been a dialogue of the deaf because it's true that Elias, I mean they focused on the fact that uh, Levi Strauss had just nicely published uh, a book called the, the Origin of Total Manners yeah um, but both he and you know, in effect his disciple Mary Douglas are looking at patterns of avoidance as, as a static, basically. And the big, in the end, they're part of the anthropological orthodoxy, which is that, there is, that you can find synchronic patterns, that there is no diachronic element to it. And uh, nice people as they both were, I suspect, that Lord and Lord would have had very little say, to say to each other. Elias's question is, why do we come to have these avoidances? And I don't think either Mary Douglas or... They take it for granted that there are these and that they form a pattern. Again, a misunderstanding of Elias is that he's saying that avoidances and embarrassment, the levels of the pressure of embarrassment and so on, that there's something inherent in 
you know, the sequence of eating with your fingers and then you get your own spoon, but you still have to eat with your own dagger, but then you, you know, all the way through. But there's something that is inherent in the sequence. So you only have to look at chopsticks in China, or they think we're barbaric using a knife and fork, or to look at India, where they're very elegant ways of eating. You realize that actually that's not it, it's not inherent. And that's why, in the middle of this long discussion on table matters, your life suddenly parachutes in uh, a section called Excursus on Modeling a Speech at Court. By the way, you've got, uh, you, you've got the old edition where the table manners bits got all scrambled in the scanning and it had to be put right in the later edition. Um, why does he suddenly start talking about speech and its modelling, its uh, shaping the, the, the rule for rulemaking function at court in the middle of table manners? And the answer is that he's trying to say, well, actually, there's a random element in this. And he gives examples like um, in the 17th century, mid-17th century, there were two ways of saying uh, uh, my friend, or one of my, one of my friends in, in, in French. One was un de mes amis, and the other was un mien ami. And they were in terms of their meaning, identical. And it could have gone either way, but the courtiers decided that un de mes amis was polite and refined, and that un mien ami spelt a bourgeois, as they put it. And there are whole books written about, lots and lots and lots of other examples. I mean, that's the one that I tend to remember. Um, and on the whole, in French anyway, uh, it's the courtly, not always, but nearly always, it's the courtly phrase that has become standard French and, and the, the bourgeois uh, one that has disappeared. can be different in other countries. I mean, in America, <laughs> it tends to be a case of upward um, uh, mobility uh, for, for concepts. But you see the point. There is, I'm glad you asked the question because it, 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 there is a certain similarity between... Uh, Mary Douglas and Levi Strauss on the one hand and the Alliance on the other in that respect. first-year students to think what it was like to live your daily life in a highly unstable situation where you could be killed quite randomly and so on, and they still found it quite difficult to imagine that. And at the time, people were being blown up with bombs a hundred miles to the north but didn't make the connection. It's that simple. Look, when you talk about the using Max Weber's definition, a monopoly of the legitimate use of violence. You are not talking about the fact that people, you're not talking about the fact that no one uses violence. What you are saying is that 
Well, if you do murder your next door neighbour, there is a high probability in most of our kind of society that you're going to be banged up in jail or you know, even, even hanged. It, it, it's that kind of relationship. Um, but there's that point, and there's also the point I'm making to Darren about how he's not saying that all violence disappears because the violence between what he calls survival units, survival units, general tribes on the one hand at the lowest level, all the way up to um, uh, nation states or groups of nation states. You know, you get more bang for your buck in international relations as history of but perhaps not narrative. Again, coming back to Darwin's interest in international uh, relations, uh, my friend uh, Andrew Linklater uh, uh, has been uh, developing the idea that there is a, a connection between Elias's theory of civilizing processes and the English school of international relations. That's from people like Herbert Butterfield uh, onwards, and um, I suppose. Um, um, Edward Hallett Carr as well. But they are, the, 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 I mean, it's called the English School, even though uh, there are, it's not specifically English in six world now, but, but the idea that actually there, have been, there has been a civilizing process in international relations as well. It still means that it doesn't work in this very big bang. Is it also perhaps something to do with the Lord, and 
uh, he, he's, he, th- this discussion about the relationship overpopulation is a social concept. There isn't such thing as absolute overpopulation. It's overpopulation in, in relation to a mode of social organisation. But there were no gaps left for people, your young men, to go off in, and, and grab a, an estate for themselves and build their own uh, power base. And it, uh, this discussion comes in a section called On the Sociogenesis of the Crusades. And he discusses how the, so many of the, the Crusaders were the leaders of the Crusades, were you know, minor counts from France who ended up as kings of Jerusalem and, and did very well for themselves for a, a, a short time. But it also ties in with the last section in that um, You never know whether to call them chapters or parts or whatever because the book is in some respect a mess. The last section um, uh, in part, chapter one of part three, um, is on um, the Minnesänger. And he discusses um, how the the troubadours, Minnesänger is really just German for troubadours, how so many of the, the troubadours were, were, were uh, they weren't, you think of wandering minstrels, you think of them something like a, a circus clown. In fact, their, their typical background was of landless lords, younger sons of, uh, and um, the, the famous story of uh, uh, Walter von der Vogelweider, who uh, finally, after a long career, is given a small estate in Franconia by Frederick II. And uh, there's a, uh, Elias refers to his ex- exaltation. I have my estate. It's a great triumph. So that you can see how he weaves a point such as you're making about the control of land into a whole culture. I, re- I just remembered that immediately after this, um, I, should, I ought to mention the, cult, uh, the court society just in a couple of slides because uh, I thought it would be of interest to this group because this is really the court society, Die Herbische Gesellschaft, is the book that is most admired by the historians. They find the civilizing process rather strong, but they like his study of um, life at, under um, Louis XIV and just to make the point about the cultural dimension of all this and the power relations, he, he ties in, um, there's a long chapter on an extremely boring author called Honoré Dufé who wrote a voluminous novel about nymphs and shepherds and wandering knights. Uh, but also, uh, and the, 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 really this ties in with the, uh, with the troubadours that took several centuries earlier, that the, the, the nymphs and shepherds stuff can be understood as a reflection of the fact that these people were being subjected to greater control they're being sort of regimented at Versailles they, they particularly like dreams of, of, of uh, an earlier age when they lived on their own estate and ran their own affairs and uh, raped a few of the locals when they felt like it and so on um, and that ties in with you know j- French classical drama, Corneille, 
uh, Racine. Uh, it ties in, there's a long essay by Elias in uh, volume 16 of the collected works on Oato, which has never been published in uh, English before. And even the gardens of Lenore, you know, there is a certain kind of constraint about the kind of French form uh, gardens. And the whole book starts, again, just to sort of, since we're in the Humanities Institute, I thought maybe we should have a The whole book starts, this is from the Encyclopedia, and Elias begins the book by, with a chapter on the structure of the bedroom dwelling. He doesn't, he doesn't have, again, he doesn't have the, the diagram in, in the first edition. Uh, we put it in afterwards. But this is the, the diagram of a typical aristocratic palais uh, from the Encyclopédie. Um, uh, he also discusses a, a small-scale one called a bourgeois maison. And he work, He relates the, you know, it's, it's the macro structure, the bigger scale structure of the society, which is reflected in things like architecture. Um, and, you know, each of these wings, the, the husband would live here and the wife there, and they would live almost a separate existence in many respects. The whole thing could be used as a machine for measuring power. If the king came, you met him out here, and you took him right to this end, which was the most intimate end. If it was some lower-ranking person, they had them to make their way to you around here. Um, so, um, architecture, but let me just, and this is, I said I wouldn't go into a lot of detail, but he also wrote a book on Mozart, which originally was going to be called Bourgeois Artist in Court Society. And the, it was bloody Polity Press published it as Mozart Portrait of a, geni of a Genius. The whole point was that the title was The Sociology of a Genius, because his argument was that you could only understand the flowering of Mozart's musical genius if you understood his interstitial period, uh, uh, position between his bourgeois origins and his aristocratic patrons and the way they failed him uh, at the end. Um, and two other books that I left off the, the general reading list that I thought might be interesting. There's a very good book by Bram Kempers uh, called Painting, Power and Patronage, which is a study of the origins of you know, mainstream Western art in, um, well, particularly in Florence, in uh, early Renaissance Italy and subsequently. Uh, and if you, you could argue that Bram, in his PhD thesis, which back in the 1980s, was in effect picking up one element of what was to have been Elias's Habilitationsschrift from um, Heidelberg under um, uh, Alfred Weber. And the other one is a much more recent book by the, another of my cronies. Um, uh, the professor of musicology at uh, Göteborg University in Sweden called The Different Story Aesthetics in and the History of Western Music. Um, and uh, like many of these people, you know, Ulla would have been probably more of a, like Andrew Linklater, was actually more of a Frankfurt School person, and much of the discussion does sort of use. 
a balance, a, a discussion of the relationship between the Frankfurt perspective on, on these things and the Eliasian or figurational perspective. But I think that's a very impressive book for musicologists, but it's probably, you know, it's a rather obscure publisher. Um, to generalise, the uh, uh, people with funny continental names find it much more difficult to get good publishers in uh, the English-speaking world than if you caught something like John Smith. Um, anyway, I just thought you perhaps would be interested in those applications. Um, and I think we covered most of these points. I'm more or less finished uh, on... Um, uh, on, on the civilising process and, and, and so on. Um, I can talk about all sorts of things. Actually, I'm interested in his critics and the reasons in why he so, 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 so his theory was criticised, his critics, rather than his followers. Well, the short, the short answer is that they never read him. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. Um, The main criticisms of Elias seem to have been um, leveled at him that the origins were back in the days when the books were not available in English. Already there was, ah, oh, it's called the civilizing protest, or Ubidane protest, the civilization. There is no such thing as a civilizing protest. And it, uh, um, that would, so actually um, Edmund Leach made the the, the famous sneering comment in a review of Quest for Excitement, which is the book about um, the, the social development of modern sports. Um, but what you, I, I think, I, mean, I'm, I know it sounds frivolous to say, well, they haven't read him. I, it, is, it is bloody irritating that you say, you know, if you know his. It, by a historical accident, I've ended up as an expert on Elias, and I know his work pretty much backwards, and I know where he answers um, these points. But the points were made before the stuff came out, and the, 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 the Ubidin process was not translated into English until... Um, Another disaster was that there were a four-year four gap between the volumes. The first volume was called The History of Manners with a subtitle, A Civilizing Process, 1978. And the second volume didn't come out till four years later because, as usual, um, Elias was messing. There's a whole story about why he was his own worst enemy, why he didn't get these things out. The former British... Foreign Secretary Patrick Gordon Walker was trying to get this book published in English in the late 40s or early 50s, and Elias blocked it. Then there was another attempt at publishing it, and that, that ran up against Elias's comment about masturbation. I think we should rewrite the book and put in another section. He was his own worst enemy. But what you have to remember is that he was at the centre of the most, for a time, along with the LICS, but for a time arguably the most influential and most lively um, department of sociology in Britain, <coughs> Leicester, roughly from, say, 1958 to 1968 or something like that. And dozens of subsequently famous British sociologists went through. John Goldthorpe was 
in effect the leader of the, of the Popperian opposition. Tony Giddens was there, though curiously not, not really central to the debates. The, the, the debates were about Elias' ideas, and Elias real I, I, he must have been very, very annoying. I mean, he behaved like a famous sociologist and a great figure, but there was nothing in English. There was only the Uberdain process. There was the early essay on the naval profession, which we rescued from the archives and published as a book. Um, and there was the what, a subsequently very important essay called uh, Involvement and Detachment, which was the first publication that led on to a much wider theory of knowledge and the sciences, which is the second half of my slideshow, but I think there isn't time to uh, tackle it. But, I mean... Departments of sociology then as now have a tendency to be fissiparous. They, they split, they have factions, they have rows. And um, it seems that all these discussions are going on. And people like John Goldthorpe just took the mainstream Popperian view, which was that you know, history is bunk, no need to look at the past, uh, all theories of long-term development are inherently totalitarian, which is virtually what Popper says. And that was one side of the argument. The other argument was Elias, who did have a following as well, though I think actually rather a small one. But this whole debate was taking shape in a situation where most of Elias's writings had not been published. And the short answer is, you know, I find it very irritating. I'm not saying there aren't some weaknesses. I mean, he's not, he's not perfect. You do have to discuss these things. But the level of the discussion has been uniformly low. You know, if people would... The other thing is, you've got to read an awful lot of Elias before you get the hang of it. You know, Robert Van Creepen wrote the shortest book. My own book is already a big book in which I uh, summarise most of his, his work. But, um, you know... If you want, for example, the barbarization argument, in other words, Theodore, um, Zygmunt, Zygmunt Bauman's uh, argument, um, uh, this famous book, Modernity in the Holocaust, from 1988, I think, is really a debate with Elias. He does mention Elias, but um, when you read it, you realise in many ways it's a debate with Elias, and it... It's a more sophisticated version of Edmund Leach's sneer about Hitler refuting the theory on them. But Bauman goes too far in the other direction. It had nothing to do with Germany. It's just a bit silly. You know, I suppose he was just he was overstating his case more or less uh, in his entry. But you do have to read more in order to get the subtlety of the point. He wasn't the bloodiest. He always said, well, you know, I saw the Nazi takeover. It was very violent, both in the town at the city of Frankfurt and in the university. It was horrible. And he said, it is um, it's a great mistake to think that rationality and violence are opposites. That, that the Nazi takeover was both rational and violent. So he's not as naive as people think he is. Um, Barbarisation, permissive society argument, I gave you the gist of that argument, and it's actually 
What my my favourite manifestation of this is Casanova's idea of the, the changing lost balance between sex and love, in which he he documents very um, nicely over for four countries and over a hundred and ten year period um, the way in which, for example, you know the old uh, stereotype of women want love and men want sex, and he shows how this um, has it's gradually become more acceptable for men also to want love and it's certainly become more acceptable for women to uh, express uh, uh, their pleasure in, in, in sex as well so there's a, there's a whole literature in relation to that I, don't, I think that one's dead actually it was certainly originally it's one of these superficial criticisms oh you know well Elias might have been right about the medieval period up to 1900, but since then it's all gone into reverse. And the question was, okay, if Elias is arguing that the driving force is that it's the division of labour and lengthening the chains of interdependence and more complex organisations and the monopolisation of violence that is driving the civilising process, how then can it be that everything has gone into reverse and that we are less formal and more things, you know, everything goes and, and, and so on. Um, if, his, if his original thesis depends on structural changes and changes in the distribution of power, um, bringing about, if you like, social, psychological and cultural changes, how can you then have social, psychological and, structure and, 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 and cultural changes without there being a corresponding structural change. Now, at that point, you could perhaps bring in the argument about um, um, the modern world being um, uh, power becoming very uh, diffuse. But they've got a, they had a point. But the way Wouters got, if you like, got round it, the, the argument was to say, well, actually... In some respects, as I said, the constraint, the social constraints are even more demanding. But within them, the social constraint or self-constraint, that is, are more demanding. But that within those, that framework of real quite intense self-constraint, if you like to call it that, within that framework, then it is possible also to have a highly controlled, decontrolling of emotional controls in certain key areas, the most spectacular of which were to do with sex and, and social, social deference. Um, so that's the second object. Argument from cultural relativism. Well, that's really the anthropological orthodoxy that, uh, you know, my tribe does it this way and your tribe does it the other, and you can't go any further than that. And there's also the argument from what I call the, the, the argument from stateless civilizations. And that is to say there are examples of the, 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 the maroons of um, um, Guiana, I think. Um, one paper, this is a long time ago, so be 30 years or more ago, um, a bioanthropologist argued, I've got very polite maroons living amongst themselves. They've been, you know, escaped slaves living 
in small communities and they're extremely polite and it shows that you don't need a big complex web of interdependences to this this is very much the American misunderstanding of the idea of civility as well. Um, but more spectacularly is the case of the extreme self-control that, um, for example, uh, Native, Indi Na Native American um, uh, warriors showed uh, under torture, for example, they'd be captured by a rival ta uh, tribe and then gradually dismembered over a period of days or even weeks and they didn't um, they didn't scream or, or show emotion. And um, that's part of a more general argument, but it, it's not actually... Elias, I said it's not more self-control, because if you're living in a small community, the face-to-face -face control by other people, you know, imagine living in, I was going to say Ambridge, you know, the Archers, a small... Hmm? Oh yes, perfect example of course, where everyone knew everyone else and everyone knew everyone else's business and then, <coughs> but you can argue that actually that was an extremely controlled situation, uh, but it was really controlled by face-to-face -face knowledge. What he's really getting at is that, and of course there's a Freudian aspect to internalization of the anticipation of what would a person in general think if I were to do that or what would they, if I behave like this if I, you know, in trading for example if I, if I overcharge or if I work some kind of um, trade uh, uh, some, some sort of fiddle uh, in, in trading what are the consequences further down the long chain of it may well be that it's not worth the cheating a customer here because the, the consequence of rippling away along the long chain into dependence would come back. In other words, it's a more elaborate version of Robert Merton's idea of unintended consequence. It's not really Robert Merton's, um, Hegel's idea of the cunning of reason. Um, where we got to? Yeah, so, so I mean, stateless civilizations is a, is a, it's a complicated issue. Um, look, I, I, think, I think these are real problems. I think the permissive society one has largely been resolved in Elias's favor. But I know. Actually, some of, the, some of Elias's friends took the opposite view in the early days of the, um, the controversy. It was, a, it was a controversy within the Elias school in Amsterdam. But it was resolved largely in, in favour of Casvaltas. Spent forty years building up a massive amount, lots of publications, you know. But two two fairly recent books, which I think settle that particular dispute. The others are not; they're not simple issues. He, he in, in philosophical terms, you'd, have, you'd probably call him a realist. Um, but he wouldn't want you to put it in philosophical terms because he thinks um, philosophy is an empty husk out of which all useful disciplines have um, emerged, leaving nothing behind of importance. I told you, radical. But his, how is it all connected to the civilizing process? Well, it's to do with 
one part of the civilizing process theory that I've not mentioned is the connection between fears and dangers. I had it sort of, you know, how do you learn to live a peaceful life and not to resort, resort to violence? Well, you have to master your own fears. One reason, one way, one important element in mastering your own fears is that the dangers, the external dangers, diminish. And then he uses this um, in developing a sociological theory uh, of knowledge, um, in which he said, actually, uh, let's see if I can do this briefly. Oh God, how can I do anything briefly? Um, the, the, um, in a way, you can go back to Auguste Comte's hierarchy of the sciences. He's saying that at the bottom levels, you know, if you like, magical, mythical beliefs were gradually brought under control earlier. So you know, we know that Isaac Newton was both a, a, a physicist, as we would call it, and a, an, an astrologer, that it was a gradual transition. But it's related to the kind of dangers that people are. And his argument is that the, the, what he calls the fantasy content of knowledge is much higher uh, at earlier stages, and that this is uh, that the, the balance shifts first in the natural sciences, the physical sciences, then in the biological sciences, working your way up Comte's uh, hierarchy of sciences, and that the most difficult thing is uh, to develop a, so, a social, the social sciences, and, and you, you can see in modern sociology it's terribly woven in with policy-orientated things, sorting out immediate political problems or social problems and so on, the, which, which really related to social fears and dangers. Um, so his argument, going right the way back to the Hernigsvall dispute, he's saying that you have to study the growth of knowledge over uh, many generations, that it's a gradual process, that it and that it's not just one science, he's against the Popperian and a logical positivist view that there is a criterion that this is scientific knowledge and that is non-scientific knowledge. Um, he hated Popper, I've never been quite sure, I think there's a cross-word at some stage. Um, but that there isn't just one science, as Popper, for example, wants to argue, but there are many sciences, and it's, it's related to the level of integration of the, the subject matter that physicists study very loosely orientated, uh, uh, integrated uh, matter, often with reversible processes. Uh, chemists already get into needing three-dimensional models, uh, a simple example, sugar, which is what C. C C twelve oh I forgot I got it in the notes somewhere. Um, the quantitative formula for sugar uh, is the same for fructose and glucose and lactose and so on, but the actual way in which the the bits are bolted together in the molecule. So already you're into a different level. Biological sciences, which people like Popper never talked about already have to have time involved, so you get, you're into four-dimensional theory. And Elias's twist is that he says, in, for example, in his book on time, which I haven't obviously gone into, that actually 
the social sciences need five dimensional theories in and the fifth dimension is either experience, which he says in some places, all the symbolic damage, but it's taking, it's taking account of the fact that human beings are symbolizing creatures and that you can't understand them without understanding both the sort of four-dimensional structure and the way in which those structures are experienced by the people uh, caught up in them. And it's anti-relativistic. He talks about relative. It sounds a bit like Pope Ratzinger uh, actually going on about uh, relativism. Elias refers to um, relativism as the worm in the apple of modernity. The whole point is that while knowledge has to be constructed, and you know, you get one are you? Are you a realist or a constructivist? And you know, social constructionism in sociology is rubbish. The big question, the sociological question, is why one thing gets socially constructed and not another. And the whole history of the science, if you view the history of the sciences in this broad sense from the year dot through the physical science and the biological sciences to the social sciences, you realise that reality does actually limit what it's possible to construct. And in the end, I suppose, again to use a, a, a philosophical term, um, which he wouldn't like, um, but in a sense his criterion of truth is pragmatic. It's what you can do with knowledge. I suppose that in the end is the... the so, you know, there is the famous Evans Pritchard argument about the Azande that um, uh, chickens' entrails were just as good as uh, any other as, as modern science for organising their way of life. It's no doubt true, but there is a, a quantitative element to it. That we have a bigger stock of knowledge than the Azande had, and that we can do more things with it. Um, we can send a man to the moon with our knowledge. Now, that's not to say that. Sending a man to a moon, the moon is a good thing. It may well be that humanity's gone down all the wrong uh, turnings, but the fact is that the Azandi with their chickens and trail probably wouldn't have been able to send a man to the moon, whereas we can. So, in a certain sense, it's a pragmatic test.